clean beds and pillows a little white ship to Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with celebrated New York City jazz vocalist and radio host, Mary Foster Conklin. We spent some time talking about her new 2022 CD, These Precious Days. She is an old-school song hound with a special talent for uncovering lesser-known treasures of the great American songbook and performing them in non-traditional venues. She hosts a weekly live radio show called A Broad Spectrum, The Ladies of Jazz, celebrating women composers and lyricists. Originally, this New Jersey native came to New York to pursue theater work. The transformation from actor to jazz singer began when she joined drummer and composer Art Lilliard's 15-piece Heavenly Band. She's a delight. We cover all of this and so much more. Dig in. Thank you very much for taking some time out today to talk about Precious Days and, and your career. I appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. So before we get into your new album, you know, you've obviously gone through quite a bit with uh, COVID, especially artists and musicians. I'm wondering how you survived that time period and how it changed the way that you approach not only your music, but life now. (laughs) Excuse me, you don't mind if I just have a little chuckle. Oh, please Um, do, yeah. You know, experiencing it on a personal level and also experiencing it as an artist and also as a radio person, it... um, it was, it was, I was not one of those people that experienced it by just being bored. Uh, I was sort of in the middle of uh, taking care of my parents, aging parents, uh, before COVID hit. And my dad died very suddenly at the end of 2018, and I was taking care of my mom. And was just beginning to sort of get my sea legs back as far as performing. And then COVID hit, my husband got COVID very early in March 2020, and we live in New York City, and then my mom passed away a month later, not of COVID, but so it was sort of between those things. Also, I'm, we were in New York, we live in New York City, we live in a little one-bedroom um, downtown. New York City shut down, and the political climate at that time, you know, you had a, a people in high offices that were just trashing New York City. It's a shithole. It's an anarchist jurisdiction. Uh, So all of a sudden, it was sort of like, once again, New York City was an island off the coast of the United States was how it felt. When my husband got sick, he fortunately was not sick enough to need to be put on a ventilator. But back then, in early 2020, hospitals, if you could recover at home, they, they encouraged you to. They said, we don't want to take him. We want we're going to send you home and you just stay in touch with us. So that was a little scary. Um, my husband's symptoms that got scary was he had a, he had high fever for about a week and was hallucinating and having seizures and stuff. And so that, that got kind of frightening. New York city shut down all of a sudden this vibrant city was like the first thing you heard when you woke up was bird song. It, the streets were deserted like it was a movie set. So it was very strange. Also, the what happened, I do a radio show out at Fairleigh Dickinson University out in Teaneck, New Jersey. And, of course, the radio station shut down early because it was in a, on a college campus. I had a friend who did a syndicated show who reached out and called me up and said, you need to be on the air. I'm going to help you make the transition to record your show remotely. And I was back on the air and three weeks. 
recording from my closet and, you know, doing the thing, you know, loading the music files. And for the first year, I would do the vocals, you know, over the telephone with him. But as this thing evolved, I now do the whole show by myself and uh, produce it in Audacity and uh, send the file off to the station via WeTransfer. You know, it's it's just been very uh, interesting. As a as an artist, it was devastating because as a singer, you know, what we were told was that it was dangerous to assemble. You know, there were whole choruses and choirs and shows where everybody was getting sick. And so in the beginning, it was just heartbreaking to think that what that we would not be able to assemble. We would not be able to get together. And clubs were closed and they were doing, you know, live stream stuff. But uh, it was uh, it was hard in the early months. And also just making the head transition from doing live performances to suddenly experiencing things online. You know, suddenly the performer's the size of a postage stamp, and but we were grateful for it because God knows, you know, Spike Wilner down the street at Smalls and Mesro, you know, was doing live stream performances every day, you know, and for that was a lifeline that there was stuff going on. What do I, I have piano in my house and I have a, a ukulele, two ukuleles, so I just did more of of accompanying myself in the bedroom, you know. It, it's interesting that you mentioned Spike because when, when the pandemic started, in my position of radio, I had to really make a choice. It was a shock, obviously. And I really decided to ramp it up more. I interviewed more than I ever did. And I always remember my interview with Spike. It was in the summer of 2020. And I, oh, could, yeah. just, I could hear it in his voice that that was when the rent, the back rent, and, and the forgiveness yeah. was starting to give way. And he just didn't know what he was going to do. But I just always could feel it in his voice that he wasn't going at all. He wasn't going anywhere. But I, yeah. people... You know, the people around him were going places, and that was heartbreaking to him. And I just had him on the show. He just had a new trio CD that came mm-hmm. out. And mm-hmm. I, I always, like, ever since that interview, I haven't talked to him since, I always hold Spike in a different level of of uh, reverie because of what I know, what I felt at that time was such a fight for him in the biggest cauldron of jazz in the world to keep the dream going, not just for him, but for everyone Everyone. No, it was really those early performances. I mean, I joined up so that I could, you know, support by the month and click in to see performances. And it was a real lifeline. Also, I mean, they were impromptu. Emmett Cohen was doing, people were doing stuff from their living rooms. Uh, Tony Vassar and Champion Fulton. And, you know, uh, a million years ago, um, back in 2009, um, I was part of an impromptu performance group that, that came out of somebody's apartment when the High Line first opened. She was a punk drummer and photographer who had lived in an apartment on 20th and 10th for decades. And then all of a sudden, the High Line becomes a thing, and there are spotlights in her bedroom. And suddenly, she has to buy curtains, and she's like, the hell is this? And she realized her fire escape was like a little stage area over the high line. And she called a friend of hers who was like a street performer and said, we got to do something. And she put on a designer gown and was singing a cappella off a fire escape. And 
with you know that became the Renegade Cabaret. And that summer, we were singing off fire escapes. We were we had instrumentalists playing off fire escapes. You know, so during the pandemic, you know, you had people performing off fire escapes, and we were like, we did that years ago. But it was for a New York thing. It was very important. You know, also out in Brooklyn, you know, backyard performances. Uh, in my neighborhood, there was a coffee shop uh, between near the Chelsea Market that was having live performances outside. I think Benny, uh, what is it, Benny Benack was reading them. I forget, but there were people that were doing regular outdoor performance stuff, which is like, that's a New York thing. That's what musicians do. Well, and that's the reason why New Yorkers always find a way to not only innovate, but survive. I remember one point I interviewed a musician that was in Spain, and it was getting really loud. It was when uh, everybody would go out on the balcony and cheer the nurses when they came home, and he was like, oh, I'm yeah. sorry. He was like, can you edit this out? I'm like, what are, you, are you kidding me? I said, thrust the phone out there further. You know, I need to get this audio. because We had that at 7 o'clock every night for a long, long time. We had the same thing. We had the yeah, same so. thing. It was emblematic of the time, and it was it needed to be recorded. You know, it has to feel good now that we're coming out of this. You know, I'm, I'm careful because I've been corrected enough. I'm not saying COVID's over with, but I'm saying what we collectively know is this kind of time where everybody was locked down is coming out. Performers are out. Things are opening up. It has to feel really good, whether it's a catharsis or it's a phoenix rising moment, to be able to have precious um, days come out now. Well, it's weird. I have to say, because my husband had COVID really early, so it was kind of very clear to us how dangerous it was. When we got vaccinated, we got vaccinated pretty early, and I, you know, started going back into the clubs to view performances in 2021. But like, then the Omicron thing happened, you know. And there was a bit of a heady thing in 2021 when people were getting vaccinated. And the early illusion was that the vaccination was going to get rid of COVID and there was a united front. But now it's kind of become everybody's guess. There are people that don't believe in the vaccines. There are people that don't believe in the usefulness of masking. There, you know, there's all this, all of a sudden we're not a united front. And the politicians and the businessmen have become like, well, you do you, which is, you know, a school of thought, but it's, I, I find that not working with the United Front made things more difficult because what's happening now is people are just choosing to risk and that's fine. But the singers I know that have thrown caution to the winds and gone back to clubs and touring have gotten sick. And the problem with COVID, because I got COVID last spring, is for singers, it goes right for the throat. And there are singers that I respect that I admire their bravery, but they, I mean, there were singers that came on tour and got COVID and had to cancel. There were singers that damaged their throats and had to have surgery, you know. So in my mind, it's not over. It's just the next chapter. Yeah. And, 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 the, and, and I don't want to get into it. I don't want to get political yeah, or I argumentative about it. No, I don't either. And I just only, I only preface that because I've said, hey, with everything waking up, it's been misconstrued as, somehow it's over and I know it's not but it's more of just the world waking up so my question to you let's go to like sunnier places here I want to go back to the beginnings of your life how did this jazz journey begin for you um well I was 
you know, I was this deep voice character actress in college, and I, you know, I sang, I always sang. I sang in choirs, I sang in acapella groups, I sang in punk bands, I sang, you know, and I did a radio show in college. So, and I was a theater and English major, so I was a actor and a writer. But because I had more of a rock and roll type voice, not a legit voice, I wasn't like a musical theater person singing Sondheim in the bars. And I came to New York to go to theater school and didn't even know about club work until I had a teach. I guess I had a teacher that just said, you, you should be singing in the clubs. You would do well there. And I had a voice teacher who um, was kind of encouraging me to put together some kind of a club act thing. And so I, I, my first professional gig in New York was with a punk band um, <laughs> in a in a East Village bombed out place called Eight BC, and uh, I was filling in for a friend of mine who was ill, and uh, they didn't want to give up their New York gig. So my first professional gig was was you know with purple hair and a Cindy Lauper outfit, uh, singing with a grand, with a band called The Vacant Lot, and then three months later in an anime wand dress that I made myself. I did a. I put together a club act in uh, at a little club in the vill in the West Village called the Horn of Plenty. Started putting experimenting with doing that kind of thing. The thing that got me into jazz was, I mean, I'd always played jazz on my shows and stuff. I was a big, you know, Chick Corea and Herbie Hancock, and I played a lot of gong in college and stuff. Paul Winter. So I guess that that makes me kind of a fusion hip person. But um, sorry about that. But, um, no, you're good. I got a gig with a lot with a big band, old-fashioned big band, um, Art Lillard, drummer, and uh, I was replacing uh, his. He had just lost his girl singer. She went moved to New Orleans, and he hired me. And I really was not your typical band singer. And I had I really sucked, <laughs> but he refused to fire me, and I had to get better. So I uh, learned how to call tunes and learned how to, you know, just had to learn how to be a band singer, which is sort of the old school way. I always say that's if you read about from Peggy Lee to Ella to Billy to all the people who've sung in big bands, that's sort of how you learn. You get thrown in and you suck on the bandstand until you get better. And uh, that was sort of what happened to me is I learned old school. Really, I was the thing that was the... There was, used to be a great record store in my neighborhood called Footlights. Vinyl. Vinyl record store. And they did sell CDs, but it was back then it was vinyl because I'm old. I was trying to find... Because for me, like, standards were not my thing. I was a punk rocker. I mean, I, I just... I felt like it was my grandmother's music. And I had to find a bridge to find music that would work in a jazz setting. And so I... I got into. I discovered a, a collection of recordings by uh, a label called Rosetta. Rosetta, the Rosetta series, was run by a woman named Rosetta Reitz. I think is her last name. She and it was the focus was women, women jazz artists. And I bought a whole bunch of most of the Rosetta series is on vinyl. Never made it to CD. And at that time in New York, Alberta Hunter was still playing at the Cookery, on the corner of. Where was the cookery? It was on 8th Street and like 5th Avenue, maybe. You had uh, Bradley's and you had the Knickerbocker on University Place. 
And uh, so I, I started learning, a, and then I found this great book called The Book of the Blues, and it had a discography. And so I was able to trace like something like Will Green, who wrote In the Dark with Bill Brunsey. And you find out how many people recorded it, from Nina Simone to, uh, oh, and also, Why Don't You Do Right? And uh, Peggy Lee crossed the color line and recorded with Glenn Miller. And, uh, you know, so, as you can tell, I mean, I've always been a music geek, but it was sort of the way I found my way into the jazz canon, I think, was through this specific collection of music put together by a woman who was just compiling recordings from the public domain. Alberta Hunter, Valida Snow. I can just, you know. Well, it sounds like recorded music was a big part of your lore, but do you remember what the very first jazz show was that you saw that blew you away? I was lucky enough to see Ella at Radio City. I saw Betty Carter at the Blue Note with Cyrus Chestnut as her pianist. And she was, I mean, she was amazing because she just turned her back on the audience and was terrorizing that band. They had to pay attention because they didn't know what she was going to do. She was something. I, I regret that I never saw Carmen. I did get to see, you know, Mark Murphy for years and years. That came later. Um, Bob Doro, who would play at the opening of an envelope, who was wonderful and, and an old village person. I didn't get up to places like Michael's Pub like I should have when, um, like Mel Torme was there or Matt Dennis. And I kicked myself about that. And I grew up like watching variety television and you would see Duke Ellington on television. You would see Louis Armstrong on television, Peggy Lee, Carmen McRae. You would see them on variety television. And I mean, I can remember Peggy Lee was like, like a, a snow queen. I thought she was the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen. And Ella was a force. You know, Ella was a very, uh, prominent person on on television you saw her all the time she was doing the memorex commercials so it was so and also in new york you know and also the radio when i grew up even listening to like am radio you would hear on a rock and roll show frank sinatra peggy lee um louis armstrong right up there with the beatles the dave clark five flying the family stone it was a lot more mixed and so you, you're, you know, we were corrupted because by the time I started going to live shows, there were singers. I was aware of the fact that there were singers that were convinced the Beatles had stolen their careers, and they were they would say so on mic, you know, which as a young person bothered me because it was, you know, I was too young to understand what had happened from the early '60s to the end of the '60s. As far as, as the nightclub world, but yeah. there were a lot of artists that by the time I was starting to go to live shows made a point of just saying, you know, the Beatles stole my career. That's fascinating. I've never heard that before, and I would never think that, you know. I um, went, there was, I can remember because I went to a, a Nat King Cole thing at Carnegie Hall because I remember Sweet Edison was on the bill, and he he sat down, and she was playing sitting down on a chair. I forget who was in the lineup. It was a great program, though. And uh, But there were I remember people, I was just aware of the fact that there were singers on that bill that made a point of just saying the Beatles stole my career. 
And you, and when you're a young person, I learned that, that, that was a sort of an early lesson. Like, you take a chance when you complain on Mike. That's interesting. That is fascinating. I've never heard that, but I, I'm not surprised, but, um, that, that's very interesting. You know, you're, you're a pretty diversified person as far as, you know, being an artist and being behind the microphone. And you obviously have a good pulse on the jazz community. What do you like the best about being a part of the community? What is it that you look forward to every day? I respect my colleagues. I really do. Um, the singer community, I, there's also one in L.A., there's one in Chicago. Uh, the singer community is, is quite an amazing collection of artists, all very diverse, and yet there is great respect among colleagues. And for singers, I, I put it that way just because for singers it's so difficult because there's too many of us and not enough slots. I've always loved that expression, the, the venues are few and the knives are sharp. But actually, the vocal community in New York City is quite supportive. There was um, one of Bobby McFerrin's um, Voice Astro people. There have been a bunch of great educators that have come from Bobby McFerrin's Voice Astro, and one of them is Rhiannon. And she came through town, Jesus, decades ago. Every vocalist, there was a whole group of vocalists that studied with her, and what was wonderful was that for the fir- for a lot of us, for the first time, it was throwing vocalists together the way you throw instrumentalists together. Vocalists don't get the opportunity to jam the way that instrumentalists do. And I think for a lot of us, that opened our eyes to, even if we weren't going to gig together, it made us realize that we were instrumentalists. And in jazz, that's that's the deal. You're not just the chick singer. You are an instrumentalist, and you need to speak the language in order to get your shit done. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and I'm wondering too, you're mentioning a lot of singers and and I'm curious, you've you've seen typically what I'll ask people is if you can get to a time machine and go back in time and see somebody, who would you see? But you've already gotten in that time machine for most people that would be able to answer this question. So I'm wondering in this twenty twenty three, who's out there now that you would love to catch live? Renee Marie. Every time I've seen her, she has stopped my world. I miss her. I, I, she is one of my favorite live performers. She always gives 250%. She is a great communicator and a passionate... Uh, oh, also, uh, what did I see just before the shutdown that just blew my mind was um, I got... I, I, you know, I'm still like processing my dad's death. and You know, you lose your parents and it changes you, but yeah, I... Uh, I went to see the Ogress, the piece that she does with um, Darcy James Agu, um, and uh, it was at Jazz at Lincoln Center, and it really was more of a performance piece, performance art piece, than a jazz piece, you know, because it pretty much she was at the mic for an hour and a half telling a story about a giantess that eats children and the man that's drafted to go into the forest and kill her, who ends up falling in love with her. And I'm watching this thing, and my jaw is just like, wow, look at that. <laughs> you know, my preference in music, I'm, as you can tell, I'm kind of a hybrid. And, you know, coming from a theater background, the mix, you know, and lyrics are as important to me as melody, although you need both to get the job done. But Cecile McLaurin Savant is that kind of hybrid where... She really is not ashamed to, she's not a a purist as far as, I mean, I've seen her do, 
you know, sing with a big band and scat and do standards, but she also will do a Blickstein tune. You know, her latest recording is very representative of how far all over the map she's willing to go, and I totally support that. I've heard that she she's a level of phenomenon that's unreal. Um, you know, I got a quick anecdote for you, and I, I want I want your thoughts on what I'm going to ask after it. You know, during the pandemic, we had these things called flex pods, and they were outdoor concerts where people would park cars. And Bobby Watson was at one of them, and I had a downbeat shirt on, and I'm walking towards the bathroom at one point, and some guy that looks like he should have been at a Kenny Chesney show stops me and basically says, "What's that mean on your shirt?" And I'm looking at him, I'm like, it's downbeat, you know? And he's like, well, what's that mean? And I was trying to figure out if he was joking with me, but I took it seriously, and I said, it's a jazz magazine, you know? It's kind of the jazz Bible. And he was like, cool. And he starts talking to me, and he gets real genuine. So as we start talking, he's there with his daughter, and he just got into jazz over the pandemic because he was listening to a nightly jazz show here in Kansas City. And mm-hmm. I was thinking how romantic that notion is because – I was hoping that there would be a reversion, not a, a progression, but somewhat of a reversion back to the day where jazz was king and queen in America. And I'm wondering with you now from what you see behind the mic and in front of the mic, are you noticing that there's any level of resurgence or what are you seeing as the strength well, of the jazz community? I'm very spoiled because I live in New York City. And in New York City, you have islands of different kinds of jazz. You know, you have trad, there's a very strong trad movement at the ear in it, um, on Sundays. You've got Mona's on Tuesday nights that the young people go, you know, where the action doesn't start till midnight and goes till four in the morning. You've got Vince Reggiano with a residency at Birdland. That's one kind of jazz. You've got other clubs like the Stone and out in Brooklyn and Roulette and, you know, where the stuff is almost what I would call pseudo classical, you know, modern classical, atonal, you know, uh, not, you can't dance to it. Let's put it that way. And in some cases, as a DJ, when I'm listening to that really out of the box stuff where I'm going, is, is there a melody somewhere here somewhere? You know what I mean? It, but in New York, you can have these different islands of music, but when you put the blanket of jazz over all of it, it's difficult. I don't know if that makes sense. Um, it does. I, I think it, that within yeah. certain camps, there are young people that love to go to Mona's, that love to go to, you know, the back room down on Delancey Street to hear, but it's trad. It's not modern, you know, the modern jazz, when you go to the new school or the stone or roulette, you're going to get a whole different listening experience with someone like Myra Melford or Mary Halverson. Very different. If you go up to Lincoln Center, you're going to get another thing because that's the Winton Marsalis thing. You know, if you go to Birdland or, or the Blue Note, you know, it. those are like sort of where the big labels send their people on tour kind of thing. You go to Smalls and Mesro, that's a whole other thing. Have not been as out and about as I should, but I do know that since Birdland reopened, it's been packed. I know that Smalls and Mesro's does really is packed. You know, people need live live music. As far as what they like to listen to, I think it's a mixed bag. 
don't know if you as a DJ, like I have regular listeners, and even though the show is remote, I'm very present logging in the show in real time, and I get texted by people. And if my stuff goes too far out, I have listeners that will text me going, I'm getting out the heroin. What are you playing? And I'm like, <laughs> just wait. You know, it. just wait. Because for me, within the periphery of my show, um, I, they're going to be it's not going to be one specific style because mine is women writers and I'm as much of an admirer of, I try to, to include as much of the, the more um, esoteric stuff as I can. And, uh, you know, just kind of, I can't please everybody. Let's put it that way. And some people, they, if it gets too atonal, if it, if it, there is no groove, if you can't dance to it, they don't want to, they don't want to hear it. For other people, they find trad jazz too hokey and old-fashioned. You know, but like I said, you cannot please everyone. No, I yeah, I understand that, and I do I do love the the, the different flavors, and I noticed that there was a little bit more electronica that started happening over the I don't mind. Period. Yeah, well, I mean, that's I mean, I don't mind because maybe I grew up in the my my musical tastes in the seventies and eighties. There was a lot of electronica. There was a lot of fusion. There was, you know, you had Herbie Hancock, who is a great example of somebody who dips his toes in a lot of different times and makes it all work. But I also am old enough to remember when he started doing, you know, modern, you know, rock artists, rock composers in a jazz setting, and people walked out of the goddamn show because it wasn't pure. I'm glad that that's kind of changed. I'm not a big yeah. fan of the jazz police. I, I don't find jazz pure because artists have got to explore. I agree. You know, I that's that's agree. my feeling. It's just like, if you don't like it, don't buy it. But don't yeah. condemn them. Let them explore. Yeah. I, I 100% agree. I embody that with what I do as well. You know, everyone out there has a perception of you, an idea of who they think you are, your family, your friends your fans, your listeners, but ultimately you're in control of your life. What's your perception of you? Who do you think you are? Well, it was interesting with the last recording, um, which was photographs, and I did it back, that was released in early 2016, and, you know, Hillary was still a candidate, everything in the world was a very different place. See, it was, it was, I was feeling like I, I was following a gut instinct, one of the songs that I did on that was with Oscar Brown Jr., Long As You're Living. And, um, you know, the tagline was, you know, brother, this is your life, but I sang it, sister, this is your life, because sister, this is your life. And that was sticking with me of going, well, what is your life? And there was just this feeling like I needed to be a little more representative of what I stood for somehow. And one of those things was I wanted to be a little more out as a feminist in my work. Not that, you know, men are scum, but it was just sort of like, there was just this feeling like, you know, the fact that I was, the beginnings of my of my musical journey began with finding out all of these women writers and all these women artists from this obscure vinyl label. You know, I had started doing music shows called The Broad Spectrum, where I was just picking up from Great American Songbook and Blues and the Modern Songbook, women just focusing more on women writers. And when I got the chance to do the radio show 
when I went out for the interview at, at Fairleigh Dickinson. And they said, well, what kind of jazz show would you like to do? I said, how about women writers? And there was just something in me that was like, and this is before Me Too hit. This is before all that stuff hit. I was just trying to formulate a little more specific statement about where I was at artistically. And then all that hit, and Trump was elected. Holy moly. And all of a sudden, I'm knitting a hat, and I'm getting on a bus with a bunch of strangers to go to Washington. And it was a very different experience. And all of a sudden, my show, whether I liked it or not, had become a political thing. Because like I, all I said on the air one day before I went to Washington was, I'm knitting a hat, and I'm getting on a bus. And I immediately got an email from a listener going, love your music, hate your politics, you've lost, an, or you've lost a listener. I did a gig at some private luncheon thing, and it was, oh, it was for with Jim Gavin and his Peggy Lee biography. And uh, he had asked me to do some stuff from the Mirrors Project. And uh, it was Jerry Lieber's birthday. And I, I closed the set with uh, I'm a Woman. And I just mentioned that I had gone to Washington and, and that Mike Stoller and his wife Corky were, in, were huge proponents of Planned Parenthood. And a woman came up to me after the gig and she said, you know, you had us in your pocket until you started talking about that march. And I'm like, what? <laughs> Suddenly, whether you liked it or not, the world was getting a little more polarized and political. Yeah. And, you know, I come from that, you know. I was in high school during the dawn of the women's movement, for God's sake. But goodness gracious, suddenly it was like, you know, people were argumentative. People were taking sides. And it's if I've learned anything coming out of the, the pandemic, especially in New York City, it's like be a good human, and it's not all about you. Those are Absolutely. the two things I've learned, you know. And, yeah. and don't go looking for fights. It's It's much more like live and let live in order to be able to just live your life. Very true. Talk to me a little bit about how this project ultimately came together and how you feel now in the afterglow. I I chose to do a recording project because I thought it was a safer way of handling the pandemic. I um, was not totally comfortable going back into the clubs with, with the rise of Omicron. And what had happened was my first performance post-pandemic was a video. Um, it was during Peggy Lee's centennial, and the Mabel Mercer Foundation reached out to me and said, we would love you to do something from the Mirrors Project to represent that piece of Peggy Lee as a video. You know, So I found a studio and did a thing. And when I had been working on the Mirrors Project, which was its own thing, it's 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 a recording that Peggy Lee did in 1976 after she won the Grammy for Is That All There Is? And it's a collection of theater songs that Lieber and Stoller wrote. And they were never taken seriously because they were pop icons. And back in the 70s, the suits were like, you can't be artistic because you wrote for Elvis Presley. And they just weren't taken seriously. And they really loved that material. But anyway, that's a whole other story. But it was started with that video performance, and I had brought in Sarah Caswell with John DiMartino on piano, and we did Some Cats Know. 
And it was such a cool sound. John and I had been talking about wanting to do a new project, and I said, rather than just doing like piano vocal duo project, which would be easy and safe, you know, let's cook, let's see what we can do with Sarah as an added voice. So we put a gig on a calendar at the Soapbox Gallery, which was in Brooklyn, is in Brooklyn, and put together a set that was just piano and violin. It was sort of, you know, so, so this album had a concept to start because those were the main voices in my head. And also what was coloring the project was the fact that I was coming out of isolation. I was, I had lost both my parents. Um, I had lost a nephew to an overdose. Um, I, you know, so there was grief, there was loss and that was color and it had rocked me and I was still processing. And also, you know, I'm sitting in my bedroom with my little ukulele playing, you know, Leonard Cohen tunes and shit. So, and doing the radio show in my closet. So a lot of different, there were some tunes that had been sort of in the back, on the back burner, like just for now and uh, Heart's Desire that I knew, you know, I wanted. And also I had done a whole thing with Fran Landisman songs. I never expected to do Scars as a recording because I always thought it was more powerful as a live performance thing. But then I found this great poem of Fran's and decide, and we just decided let's, we did it at the soapbox where we did the past as a foreign country coupled with Scars. And I just said, why not? Why not? Then there were the tunes that were specifically, you know, like I knew Dave Frischberg and um, I really have always wanted to do Heart's Desire. And when Dave died, I just, I, it was like losing Bob Doro. I mean, and it just, it felt like I'd lost a friend. And um, for my dad, um, it was September song. His birthday's at the end of September. And when I was at the soapbox gallery, I was like, let me, I'm, I'm at that age where you either do Here's to Life or September Song. I said, so I'm going to try September Song and I'm going to do it for my dad. And it really, I mean, it was wonderful to be able to do something so heartfelt. I, I feel like this project comes from a deeper place because I just went through some deep stuff. Uh, I felt like my heart was on my sleeve. I, I kept referring to it as my sad little pandemic project. But as a DJ, I kept getting product from people where it was like I lost my mother, I lost my husband, I lost my brother, you know. And suddenly it was like instrumentalists were becoming singer-songwriters and jazz people were going back to their classical roots. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I just started to understand that I, I went, everybody processed the pandemic in their own way and these are pandemic projects and they must be respected as such. And I guess this is mine. So that's my answer. If it makes, I sense. like it. Yeah, it totally makes sense. If anyone out there wants to pick this album up in the most proper format, that's going to benefit the artist. And if anyone wants to know about what you're doing as far as live shows, where can they do that? How can they do it? Website. Um, they can uh, go to my website, uh, maryfosterconklin.com. Um, I'm also, because of the radio show, pretty active on social media. There is a broad spectrum page on Facebook. There is a musician page on Facebook. Um, I, I'm on Instagram, MF Conklin, at MF Conklin. I, uh, I still use Twitter, which is sort of the writer's medium, um, which is at a underscore broad spectrum. The shows are archived at mixcloud.com. I think yours are as well. 
I also like doing, I just put, say, put this out also about the radio show. What I like about the radio show, too, is it keeps me generous. It's a way of giving back to the community. That was the reason why I went back on the air during the shutdown. Because, as my friend said, you need to stay on the air. And I'd be like, hi, live from the Bowen Bunker, reporting from the anarchist jurisdiction of New York City. I'm reporting as what I see, what I hear, and we are fine. I like being a cheerleader for uh, women artists a lot. Uh, I get really excited when, you know, composers are reaching out there, I have a new release, and I... Instead of going, that bitch, how did she get the funding? Or who got her? Why? How did she get funded? It's like, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited what they're doing. I, I get excited. I, you know, I, I, um, I get really bored by the same 25 standards and the same faceless singer. I really respect people who take the time to develop who they are and what they say, whether they do covers or whether they write their own stuff. I agree. I do. I, I love to diversify myself. I love it when new people reach out. That's one of my favorite things is when people reach out that come from all corners of the world. And uh, that's the joy, I think, of doing this is bringing, um, you know, just bringing a light down on this entire art form and the way that it should be illuminated. And uh, it's great. It's wonderful. I mean, radio, I think, got a little more, people got more interested in podcasts and radio because of the shutdown. And, um, you know, and the radio people that I've met are, you know, we, we all just love the music and we love to share it. And, you know, it all boils down to, have you heard this one? Have you heard this? You know, sitting around where you used to play records for each other and now you're sending MP3 links or YouTube links. And, uh, but there, there's some cool, and even if you don't get all the new stuff, like the, the J.D. Beck and Domi, it's like, it's not everybody's bag, but... It is, you know, young people experimenting. I will tell you what just I thought was the coolest thing I saw online as far as per- live performance. I was online. I was sending enthusiastic emails to Mike Stoller after I saw it. Was that the Hollywood Bowl? They did a salute to Frank Sinatra and Peggy Lee, and they specifically did "Is That All There Is," but they split it between Debbie Harry and Billie Eilish. It was the coolest. It was the coolest. Now, I'm an old punk, but so here's Debbie Harry, and I never thought of Debbie Harry doing Is That All There Is, and she was so perfect. She's very smart, that one. Yeah. But Billie Eilish, all of a sudden, the second verse of Going to the Circus, sung by a young person just going, I don't get this. I don't understand why this is important. I don't, I, I don't, is that all there is to the circus? I don't get it. And all of a sudden, it made all the sense in the world. When you try to share something you're so passionate about with a young person, and they're just not into it. I was so excited. It was so cool. Yeah. Yeah, I I wrote Mike, and I just said, I don't know who programmed this thing, but it was the coolest because it opened up your music to a whole new generation of people in a way that makes sense. Absolutely. And that's the key. That's beautiful. Mary, thank you for opening up. Thanks for taking time out about the album and your life, your encyclopedic, well <laughs> jazz knowledge. I appreciate it. I'm such a geek, you know. We oh, all are, yeah, 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 yes, we all are. Yes, we are. This has been wonderful. I really appreciate your time. Oh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. It's preaching to the choir, but a real pleasure. And I have never been to Kansas City. 
but I really hope to get there soon. Oh, yeah, we would love to have you here, and, and you'll never forget it. you got to get a little bit of barbecue, and the culture here is something that you won't expect. It's really good. I, I, the Midwest, for me, is still undiscovered territory, and I really, I, I did some theater in St. Louis a million years ago, but going to Kansas City would be, well, they've written songs about it. Hopefully, we'll get there. Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest singers and players in New York City, Los Angeles, Kansas City, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. Thanks to Mary for her time, energy, and cool. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store or Spotify. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com. And for everything Neon Jazz all the time, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. I'm aboard, all aboard, I guarantee you a pleasant journey. Neon Jazz.